This is UX Radio. Here are your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Today we're talking with Stephanie Mancarelli. She is a senior design director at Walmart Labs, where she spends her days inspiring her teams to push the boundaries of what is possible to innovate for millions of Walmart customers. Previously, Stephanie lived in Stockholm, Sweden, and worked at the Spotify headquarters. There, she led a team that delivered a multitude of delightful experiences to music and podcast listeners around the globe. Stephanie's background in advertising also makes her passionate about storytelling, strategy, and answering the question, so what? Stephanie focuses on helping her team make the complex simple, consider real-world implications with service design, and she believes every designer needs to wear a business hat. When she's not at work, you can find Stephanie outside hiking or playing tennis and then making an elaborate meal at home. We're really excited to have Stephanie on today's show. Hi, and welcome to UX Radio. My name is Laura Federoff. And I'm Chris Chandler. And today it is our extreme pleasure to welcome Stephanie Mancarelli, a Senior Director of Design at Walmart e-commerce to the show. Welcome, Stephanie. Woohoo! Happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. So Stephanie, just to start us off, why don't you give us your background in, in history? Yeah, sure. So my cliff notes per se. Uh, So I got my start in traditional advertising. You know, I thought I was going to be a madman. Although actually, even before that, I thought, you know, I was going to be account account manager. But luckily, I had a few really key mentors in my life to say, no, you can be in the creative field, you can do this. So um, switched gears, worked at a full service ad agency for many years, you know, going to press checks, color checking late at night, full service, billboards, um, websites, you name it. Then, you know, I transitioned to into startup world. And this was really, it's hard to count which economic crash that was at this point, um, but one of them. So, you know, no one was needing advertising essentially. So I lost my job there and then, you know, kind of got hunted into the tech world <laughs> where I was really lucky also there to, um, at, you know, at a startup, you have to have many hats, right? So I was designing websites for celebrities and brands in these connected communities, and they needed people, more engineers, more people to build the thing. And so my boss one day was like, hey, so do you want to learn how to, you know, code the sites that you're designing? And I'm like, are you going to teach me? Because sure, you know, I'm a voracious learner. I will always, I always say yes, um, something I need to work on, (laughs) frankly. But um, so I was really lucky to have our head of engineering take me under his wing. I vividly remember going into a room and he was like, okay, so zeros and ones. Like he started from there. It was really great. So then I started building the sites that I was designing, which... I think in some sense ruins you as a designer forever (laughs) Uh, because so many times you're like, just give me the keys to GitHub. I'll just fix this thing that's slightly off. And so from there, I then worked at Fandango uh, where I met Chris (laughs) and uh, you know, we went, we were there during a really pivotal time of rebranding, complete redesign of their apps and website. And I learned so much 
especially so much from Chris. We'll get into that probably later in the call. And then, you know, from there, I um, I lived and worked in Stockholm, Sweden for three years uh, at Spotify. Little known fact, I feel, is that their head, main headquarters is in Stockholm, their Swedish company. And there I was managing a team of designers who were working across uh, multiple platforms, everything from desktop to web player to the embeddable player through to connected devices and everything in between, which was just an amazing experience. Wouldn't trade it for the world. And now I'm here in San Diego working at Walmart Labs, where um, I'm currently heading up the customer experience team here. So I talk about it in a customer journey, right? Everything from you know, finding, deciding, trying, buying, receiving, hopefully loving, if not returning, and all those things in between for millions of Americans every day. So that's where I'm at now. Wow, that's really impressive. I have so many questions. I'm excited to get started. Um, I'd love to get started at, near to the beginning of your story and and understand what was the most valuable thing you learned from Chris at Fandango. <laughs> well, we were we were joking before the call that I quote him frequently to my team now. So I think that just gives you a sense of how impressionable <laughs> Chris was on me. You know, one thing in particular I think that I definitely learned from Chris is how much of your UX is outside of the screen, right? So at Fandango, one of our kind of key personas was, you know, this 20-something-year-old man who lives in New York because we just had a lot of people buying movie tickets in New York. Okay, he has to download his mobile ticket, but he's going into a subway where he's probably going to have low connectivity. And so, you know, something that we always wanted to do there or always referenced as well was, you know, we tried to model how Google does it, which they do 2G Tuesdays, where, you know, everyone at Google experiences their products in a lower, you know, internet, for instance. So I think really designing for experiences when things are happening outside in the real world was a big one. And then we kind of joke, but I do quote this a lot as well, that, you know, the back button is like the best UX feature ever. It's something that I have impressed on my designers as well, but it's just to say, you know, I think we noodle a lot in once you're in an experience or especially a web experience, okay, these breadcrumbs and this, and how do you move around and go back and forth and whatnot? It's like, just remember that people's initial muscle memory is just to go to those, some of those hero moments, right? So it's, it's more than just the back button, but it is still hilarious to me because we had some really healthy debates. And when Chris mentioned that, it just like, it loosened up the room and we all just kind of started laughing. Well, Stephanie, you know, you were, you're the first designer. I mean, the first one that I knew that actually had coding experience, right? And like you, you were such a badass because of that. Like I can clearly (laughs) see, right? The difference between, I mean, we, we we work with some great designers there, right? But to me, it was a very important learning to watch what happened when you could pair with uh, an engineer to get exactly the experience that you wanted in the front. And you were so diligent and you just fought for that so hard. And then the thing that I'll say is my impression was you didn't know a lot about UX when you started, Mm -hmm. but you soaked that up like a sponge. (laughs) Yeah. 
like you know so so just very impressive to me the way the way that you like you said being a voracious learner and i've seen that in action and it's inspiring and you know something that totally changed my career i only want to work with designers who understand code and, and can work with engineers now it's wow a, really it's such a difference maker no, but i'm i mean i love your your point about how it ruins you as a designer because <laughs> Because that's, you know, that's most, and I, I'd love if you, if you want to say some more about that, because I, yeah. I know, I know the designers I know are kind of on the fence about the positives and negatives of it. Yeah, I think it, it's a tricky one, right? Because it's, it was so a part of our industry's vocabulary for a long time. I think it's pittered out a little bit of, you know, the newest skill now that you need to learn is how to code. I would argue that the newest skill that you need to learn right now is how to write better how to be a better writer, but we can go into that a little later. But when it comes to, you know, having an engineering background, I think even if you can just get to the basics of it, you start to change your mindset, meaning you build more empathy for your partners in engineering. And you start to realize that we're all just solving problems just in different ways. We're breaking really difficult things apart to make them simple and they're building really difficult things to then make them simple. It's just like the inverted triangle almost mm -hmm. of each other. But yeah, it, it helps to be able to have those healthy debates with engineers where they're like, oh, no, this is too hard to do. I'm like, well, but you could just, what about this? And you like can sit there and brainstorm with them about how to tackle the problem instead of just handing them an experience and hoping that they can build it, right? It just, it creates more of a dialogue, but it's not necessarily like you need to be able to build a, your whole entire website from scratch. But if you know those like key points of friction, it really helps with the conversation. That's great. I'm, I'm so curious about your Spotify experience, especially moving from Fandango to Spotify is in Stockholm, no less. And I'm really curious about the controversial squad, uh, the Spotify squads, and what that looked like and your experience with that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, everything at Spotify when I first joined was very Game of Thrones, right? So we had squads and tribes and missions, and it was it's a trip what they label things there, that's for sure. But yeah, I think, um, what is there to say about squads? I was overseeing a portion of a tribe. So I had multiple squads in my purview. And there was always this kind of debate around how and where design fit into that squad model. And the one joy about Spotify is that every corner of it is different because everyone is empowered to make their own decisions. So you could have one area of a tribe that functioned a certain way within their squads and then a completely other different way, right? So one squad could be all in JIRA. Another squad could just have sticky notes on the board, for instance. One squad would be in certain, you know, two-week sprints, another in one week. It was kind of nutty. It caused a lot of other complications. However, everyone was very empowered to make the most of their role and their team and better their team which I thought was very powerful when, you know, a company isn't just so prescriptive from the top down about every single little thing. I think that's what leads to a lot of the innovation that Spotify sees because everyone is very empowered to be this active member of the company. 
But yes, the, the conundrum of also how design fits into squads and, you know, proper engineering teams has always been a tricky one. And I've tried it a few different ways. <laughs> the, the first being having dedicated designer per squad. Engineers love it. It's their, you know, part of the team. However, I find that designers are then in all the sprint plannings and groomings and hearing about things that just are not a good use of their time. No offense, engineers, but it's like at a certain point, there's a fine line between being an active team member versus just wasting some perfectly good heads down time that you could be using to solve your, you know, UX problems and whatnot for the customer. So I think uh, something that I have found success in is this sort of cemented and hybrid fluid model, meaning they're cemented for the things that matter. So it could be they always attend stand-up, but only on Mondays. So then the squad needs to kind of wrap their mind around when, what day is the best day for design to be there. Okay, it's probably towards the beginning of our sprint when we have a lot of questions about what we're trying to build and we're breaking it down together and maybe we miss some use cases and, you know, buttoning it all up, right? I think the other part too that I was a big proponent of at Spotify was being inclusive of the cross-functional team, meaning we didn't just go and sketch ideas or possibilities just as a design team. It was really founded in their squad. And I was also part of the team at Spotify who developed the personas. And so we had these big cutouts of each persona. And so we would bring in one of the cutouts or multiple if we were solving for multiple different types, put them in a room. We would have engineering in there, product in there, uh, content strategy, research, analytics, and you know, very clearly state the goal. We would kind of act out who the person was, which... Uh, I also always reference our dear colleague, Julia, who would mime things out, either mime out the animation she was looking for or mime out what a customer was going through. And I also reference that on my team all the time. I'm like, do whatever you have to do to get the story across, right? Whether it's literally miming, acting the way. She had professional mime training. I just want you to know. It was, it was, it was, this was high quality miming. Yeah. Yes, that's so true. Really, the designer, you know, for that squad would be responsible for doing that, right? Bringing in that that big cutout persona, getting us in the mindset of that, and really building empathy for the people that we were trying to solve for, but still sketching, ideating with their, their squad so that, A, everyone felt heard, right? And that their input was taken into the final solution that we were going to be delivering. But also, some of the best ideas were coming from other people, right? Because we get so stuck in a mindset sometimes as well of like, here's the patterns and this is tried and tested and la la la. And I find that it just opens us up more to actually build also that extra bit, that extra piece of delight, that extra bit of animation or micro interaction because everyone is so bought into it that they spend the time to do so. We had a really great culture of hacking at Spotify. So we had a week long hack week every year, but then within our tribe, we had a monthly hack day. And some of the senior executives always were like, we create so much during hack week. How do we make that happen every week of the year? Right. And a piece of it is 
looping everyone into the goal and getting people excited about it. And that is where I think my team really shined because on my team, we did a lot of fun Easter eggs, if you will, right? So for Pride Week, when you were on a Pride playlist on desktop and you turn the volume up or down, there was like this rainbow and, you know, uh, Say It Loud came out. We also did the Star Wars lightsaber on the scrubber and a boatload of other really fun Easter egg type things that weren't technically on our roadmap, but we just had enough people who really cared about it to get it done and work with people throughout the company to make it happen. So, And those were things that would come up out of hack days? Is that some of them? um, They might come out of hack days or our content team would have this idea or our different markets team would have different ideas that were, you know, specific to different markets around the world. And then they, most of the time they would come to me and it'd be like, okay, who, you know, I have a call out for anyone in my area to say, Hey, is anyone interested in jamming on this with me? And we would always get volunteers and it's just, you know, after work kind of thing, just to try to push the boundaries of what's possible. That's amazing. I mean, those really are the delightful moments uh, when you're interacting with Spotify, yeah. when those unexpected things happen. Exactly. And I love that idea about that basically culture supports that, right? That everybody's invested, everybody's yep. empowered. And you're even just saying like, hey, we're going to jam on this. Maybe it's after hours. But, you know, yep. that sometimes is what it takes to to deliver those moments. Yeah, which that's where Discover Weekly came from. That's where daily mixes come from. There's so many features. So my team worked on a lot of the connect features. So how when you, I don't know, it was in testing, when you, you can set a setting that when you walk into your home, it'll auto switch your audio from where you were just commuting into the speaker that you've chosen. Awesome, right? Um, and that just came out of someone's idea that then you know we shepherd and got it into the roadmap. But I just I don't believe that that would happen as frequently if design was not so integrated within the squads. But you just you have to toe the line a little bit, <laughs> otherwise because because it can get a little ridiculous uh, where a designer just doesn't have enough time to do their work because they're in all of these different uh, ceremonies and whatnot. I remember once uh, the experience from the other side, right, of trying to make sure that engineers were included, developers were included in design jamming sessions, right? And like working that problem the other way. And then one time, you know, the engineer, the developer walked out of the meeting and he said to me, did we really just spend 45 minutes talking about fonts? And and, and that was, you know, I had the opposite moment of like, boy, that, that guy really should have been coding, right? <laughs> like, so true. Like, yeah. He did not get a lot out of that conversation. And so it is really a balance point, right, of cross-functionality, but also, you know, different disciplines care about different things to different degrees. And yes. So how, do you, how do you dip your toe in just enough to feel the temperature of the water, but you don't need to cannonball in, right? Yeah, it's the same thing with product in my world. They're always like, can we please join your design reviews? I'm like, sure. Mm -hmm. Come right in. And we're like, okay, what do we, what's the hierarchy on this page? What are people seeing first, second, third? Oh, this isn't quite lined up right. What type ramp are you using? And there, you just see their eyes. Like, it's like, we're not making product decisions. Don't worry. If we're doing that, we're doing that together. <laughs> so you've led some really impressive design teams. What have you carried from your experience into the Walmart e-commerce uh, team? 
Yeah, I will say. Uh, when did you start at Walmart? Oh, uh, almost two years ago. Yeah, you know, moved back from Sweden to the U.S. to San Diego to head up their Carlsbad office and to join really as overseeing the grocery experience for Walmart. And that was a big reason why I joined. I knew that I wanted to work in something food related. I think there's just something really, I'm naturally interested in that space, uh, very into healthy living and you know how food is medicine. And I was just really excited for the opportunity to shape millions of Americans' health through food because Walmart really is America's grocery store. We don't think about that necessarily on the coast all the time, but for many folks, the only place to get, you know, fresh or frozen fruits, vegetables, whatnot is from a Walmart. And they've grown their grocery business in a massive way. I do most of my grocery shopping there. They have organic everything. It's really high quality, you know, little plug there, (laughs) but uh, yeah. So what, what did you bring to Walmart from the Spotify experience and how is it different just out of curiosity from your teams and arrangements? So it's funny, right? Because it's very similar yet very different. (laughs) I think, you know, it's fortune one corporate America versus ultra agile Swedish, you know, culture in, in Spotify. So culturally quite different. At Spotify, I affectionately called it the United Nations of tech because Stockholm is such a small city that they don't get their talent from there, right? Not not really. Mm-hmm. So on my team alone, we had representation of something like 28 different countries. I was wow. the only American on, on my portion of the tribe for a very long time. Two Icelandic dudes, but only American. So I think it, it paints a picture of just how much I've learned as a human being, as a manager, as a leader, to work with various cultures that are so different from me. I think there was a really great book that came out a couple of years ago that studied how different cultures work together and come to conclusions or communicate. And there's this just like one pager diagram that really is so perfect that you know, um, Americans, it's a straight line in, out, in, out, and then conclusion. Uh, Swedes, it's straight line, swirl, 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 back to the front, swirl, 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 back to the front. And then you never actually come to a conclusion, which is hilarious. if You know, Swedish culture and very accurate. Lots of like, everyone has to agree. We must get consensus. And then you have, you know, German, that's just like straight into the point or something. So it just speaks to what I learned there is how much I need to assess situations with others, tone down my Americanness, which I think Chris will probably laugh at because I'm just like super opinionated, you know, very passionate kind of person. And I worked with many people who weren't necessarily. And so I had to learn to tone that down to give them space to be themselves out of all the many things I learned at Spotify, that has to be one of the big ones that I keep with me to this day. Because even though I'm working with mostly all Americans now, they all have different backgrounds, right? They all have different needs, desires, wants out of life. And that's really something big that I took with me into this role. Now at Walmart, we have a four in the box model. 
So very similar to Spotify's Trio. So at Spotify, I had a product counterpart and an engineering counterpart. And so we were the trio that were leading these multiple squads, defining the strategy for our space, overall team health, um, and so much more. And at Walmart, the four in the box is design, engineering, product, and business. And so I think it really speaks to the equality of those four roles and how those four roles are really required to end up doing our best work. Now, does it mean that there are, it's only the four of us in the box? Heck no. (laughs) There's, there's content strategy, there's research, there's analytics, there's, I mean, so much more ops is a big part of, you know, the things that we need to get done at Walmart because there's the physical space that is affecting everything that we do on the digital side. So in some fashion, we do work in a sort of similar way. However, I would say that design is much more of a central unit. We're actually one of the only teams at Walmart that is not kind of broken up into other areas, right? So we have a really core design team culture. We're like the one red thread that brings everything together for our customers and our associates. Whereas different business folks or product folks only care about their little area of the world. And design is the kind of glue that keeps it all stuck together, right? Okay. If we do something on the customer side, how does that affect my amazing colleague and peer on the associate side who we're constantly staying connected? And right now we have a big project underway to showcase these sort of non-linear journeys that real people, whether they be associates or customers, affect throughout our experience, but use doing it in a way that's really engaging and tangible and high level to tell that story to basically all of Walmart. <laughs> no pressure. Well, the four in a box makes a lot of sense for sure, especially strategically. You did mention something about the health of your team, and I'm really curious to hear more about that. Yeah. Where do I begin? <laughs> um, I think it's, uh, especially during this pandemic, has been a real struggle, right? I think that the lines between work and home are blurred now more than ever. Some folks can really embrace it and have found those boundaries and what works for them. And others are really still struggling with it, right? I will say I've also been reading a lot of books on this and one of the, you know, I forget the exact term. I should have like written notes for this <laughs> at a time. I'm going to have to like go back and give you guys all the references I keep referencing. But there, it's psychologically proven that actually, little did we know, our commutes were good for us. And I, I mean, I'm like thinking in LA where I would be in traffic stuck for hours for only 10 miles but it really was good for us mentally because you disconnect. There's something in your brain that disconnects from work and your body changes, your physiology changes because you have left your office building, you're in your car, either listening to this podcast, hopefully, or music, right? And then you arrive home and you have these sort of gates within your day where your brain clicks, right? We've lost all that. So now, I mean, the key is hopefully you have a separate room for your office. For me, it's 
my husband's office, my office, my Peloton's behind me. <laughs> like it's, it's a room for a lot of purposes, but it's still a room with a door. And then it's key to walk out that door and close the door and don't go back in because that's the closest we can get right now to that same changing of the physiology in your brain that we used to get from commuting. No more traffic, no more rage, <laughs> uh, you know, no more accidents, but that one's really key. And I think the other part too, that I've really championed in my team is during this time of always on, right? You're on Slack, you're on email and it's on your phone. Oh, um, there's another good book that I'll reference. It's called The Joy of Work. They have a lot of really amazing studies. And this was pre-quarantine, pre-everything, but it so relates that just the cortisol that comes off in our brain when we see a push notification, right, is destructive to your overall well-being <laughs> and so much more. So turn off push notifications on your phone. Oh my God, what? I've done it for now 10 months. Best thing ever. Seriously, highly recommend it. Do it. I think it was very apt that Slack was down for the first Monday that we were all back. And I do, I saw on LinkedIn, someone posted Slack being down on the first day back from holiday is just proof that that Slack message can wait until you're ready to reply. And it's something that I say to my team as well. Because so many of them are taking care of their kids' home learning, right? I mean, I could go on and on (laughs) about how much life is happening during this work from home. I think we mentioned it earlier, but we aren't just working from home. We're working from home during a pandemic. And it's something I say a lot to my team that take the time you need. Walk outside. Take a break. The key here is that Just put your away on Slack. You don't even have to say what you're doing. You could if you want. Hey, making my kid a snack. (laughs) Like, you know, have people build that empathy with you if you're away. But even more importantly, set those expectations because the key for us to continue to sustain this level of working from home is getting much better at communicating with our teams. So it's as simple as I put a little dog emoji on Slack and I say back at 2 p.m. PST because I need to take my dog out, right? But then at least that person knows I'm not ignoring you. I'll just be back at 2 and that's when you can expect me to interact with you. I also have been very passionate about telling my design team, you know, content, user research, whoever the role is, just close your Slack if you're doing heads down time. We are so distracted by all of this like messaging and technology and getting back to that email as creative people find your zen find which area i'm a morning person i'm a right after lunch person i'm a night person wherever you're most creative and most productive block off that time randomly on your calendar or close slack when you're going to go into those times is just another thing that i've really been trying to Lead by example as well. I do it myself so that people see that it's not just lip service. But I think, you know, we have to hold the line a lot more of our own behavior because I think there's, of course, an important narrative around how many various companies are making their people just work harder during this pandemic. But I have found that most of it is self-inflicted, right? And just the boundaries that we need to take instead 
but it'll take us time to get those, those muscles down. Right. Cause it's for me anyways, I am very new to this whole working remote thing. <laughs> for sure. And we've noticed a lot that people have, some people have a hard time taking time off work. Yes. Just stopping or they feel guilty even. And so it's an interesting dilemma, right? Yeah. I think, uh, the whole vacation topic we feel like we could talk about for hours. It's one of the things I miss most about working in Sweden because you would get six weeks paid vacation. If you didn't take it, especially as an expat, the government could potentially not renew your green card essentially. And you get paid by the government when you take time off. It's a little bit, but it's supposed to, you know, be, hey, you took time off. Here's some money for when you took time off. And I remember the first time I went on vacation at Spotify and my partners and colleagues and team were like, bye, have a great time. Delete Slack from your phone. And like, they really meant it where I feel like for certain people in American culture, there's a lot of shaming that goes on either from your colleagues or your boss or whatnot. That's like, oh, didn't you just go on vacation last month? Or, you know, there's a lot of this judginess. And then even when you are going on vacation, you end up spending more time working beforehand to prep for your vacation. And then when you come back from vacation, it's like, I should have never even taken that time off, right? There's that feeling there. So I do wish that it was a little more supported just culturally by our peers, right? To take time off. But hopefully my team would agree that they're lucky to have me because I did live in Sweden <laughs> and I see the benefits of taking time off and how much more productive you'll be when you come back. That, I mean, I don't think I've ever declined a vacation request from anyone, even if it means that I have to do much more work to cover for them. It, it's worth it in the end for me. But I think it's a big issue in American culture, to be totally frank, um, and something I miss a lot about living in Sweden. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I feel like we could talk about that for another 15, yeah. 20 minutes. But, you know, the, one of the things I really am interested in is, you know, that basically, you know, how Walmart has responded to the pandemic and how, you know, the kinds of work and, you know, understanding how to retool a business and processes like on the run mm -hmm. in this chaos. And, that, you know, you shared a little bit about it. I'm curious, like, what has the last year been like for you and your team? Like, big sigh. <gasps> It's been, <laughs> it's been crazy, but so rewarding. You know, I think my team was one of the teams labeled as this like rapid response team, meaning in March, uh, on a Saturday, I get a call from my product, uh, leader counterpart. She's like, Hey, who can we pull in immediately? Pickup is getting rocked. All these things are broken. You know, we need to there's like 10 things we have to go ship like this week alone. I'm like, okay, great. So I call one of the managers on my team. We kind of think about who would be the best person to disrupt on a weekend or a couple people and just get this tiger team going quickly. And then of course, loop in the rest of the team when we're back in on, um, during the week. So it all started like that. Ah, what do we do? Chickens running around with their heads cut off and a lot of, normal processes just thrown out the window because they're slow and it's 
again, fortune one company and all the buy-in and all the sponsorship and all the things that you have to go through. It was just like, no, this is what we are doing. Here's the customer problems we're seeing. Here's the business problems we're seeing. And we have to react to this in days, not months. So that was a huge mindset shift, I think, for the entire company, which I believe is very positive, right? Um, It's like, how do we move towards a much more agile way of developing features for our customers? Right, when the roadmap changes daily. Exactly. Or when we're just ticking things off the roadmap daily, right? It's this new scary thing for many folks to get all their groceries delivered. I remember we did, um, we were doing rapid research constantly. So we would ship something and do and put it in, you know, research rapidly. And my user research lead at the time, she just added on to this, like, here's everything we're learning. Here's everything you need to know. Here's some amazing quotes and video clips just to build empathy with folks. And one of them, we call him a beet green guy because he said he got his first grocery order and he was really worried uh, because he loves picking out his own vegetables. And you could see he was just almost in tears because he's like, you know, this, this driver, she comes up, she gives me my groceries, you know, far away, no contact, but he opened the door and, you know, whatnot. And he looks in the bag and he's like, oh my God, these are the most beautiful beet greens I've ever seen. Normally, Or he's like, I was worried that they might get beat up because I handle them with such care because I use the greens from the beets and I love the greens from the beets. And he just said to the driver, you know, thank you so much. I think he thought that she picked her groceries. She didn't pick his groceries, but it doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) He's like, thank you so much. You picked the perfect ones and you handled them with such care. And he was like sold. So not only it started from a place of, I have to do this because I don't want to go in store and I don't want to get COVID to, wow, this is actually a really great service that betters my life, even outside of COVID, right? It just saved me so much time. I can trust that they're going to handle my things with care. And he had this connection with his delivery driver as well. Um, That was very powerful. So I think, like I said, humbling how much more we have to push the boundaries of not only you know being ADA compliant but truly accessible for every single human in the world or in the US for that matter and going above and beyond to make sure that our experiences are very simple very clear very clean is just something that we're really focused on right now Stephanie one of the questions we love to ask people is what would you like your legacy to be Oh my God, that's such a good question. Uh, it's something I think about a lot. Not necessarily my legacy, but just having that little inner critic in your head always, they never really go away, right? And I think, you know, I've read a few things recently that really great leaders are the ones who are humble and who do question themselves frequently. I'm like, oh, thank God. Because <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not supporting my team well enough. I don't, you know, I didn't catch this thing or I'm not smart enough or we didn't do this proper strategy in the right way. And I think when it all comes down to it, especially through this pandemic and everything that my team has gone through this year, 
so many folks, you know, during my last holiday email, thanking everyone, you know, for a fantastic year and everything that they, you know, bring to our team. A few people responded to it. And one in particular just said, you know, thank you, Stephanie, for leading with such humanity this year. And I mean, I could like cry just thinking about it. Um, But at the end of the day, we spend more time with our colleagues than sometimes our significant others, right? We spend a lot of time creating things as a design community, right? Creating something from nothing, which I love that we do that. We create something from nothing that millions of people use then every day. And in my world, that they really require, right? They require their groceries, their weekly staples, you know, all the things to keep their home running, their kids fed. So we need to bring that same level of empathy that we use to build products into our teams. So I think, I hope that my legacy is that I was a leader who lifted others up, who helped them learn something new, and who helped them believe in themselves to ultimately create magic. Because in my opinion, we create magic. You've given some great advice already, but but you know, advice to people who are new to the field, who are just coming into to digital design. What would you say to a to a new designer? Oh gosh. I feel like at one point I need to write a book on this because <laughs> um, I'm so passionate about it. I would tell them what I tell a lot of people on my team that everyone is just figuring it out. I'm still figuring it out. Chris, I'm sure you're still figuring it out. Laura, you're still figuring it out, right? So to come into things being extra curious, right? And not threatened or feeling like you're not enough because you are enough. You just have to be curious enough and you have to take some risks to just go out there and create. I think that in our field in particular, it's cliche to say, but you not only have to have a thick skin, you have to be brave because you're creating something that a million people are going to have an opinion about (laughs) that maybe someone will shut down, right? But you need to keep creating anyways, because the more you create, And the more rigor that you put your creations through, the more you learn, right? So, of course, it's like tried and true kind of hilarious sentiment that many times we're working on a project or a feature and it goes through multiple revisions, right? Just critique after critique after critique and revision after revision. And sometimes that gets it into like a Frankenstein approach. So we got to be careful. But for the most part at Walmart, we go through that level of rigor because if we ship something it could lose the company millions of dollars a day, or it could really harm someone's livelihood, right? They could overdraft on their checking account or, you know, boatloads of other issues at bay. So I think, uh, you know, not being afraid of that rigor and using it as a learning opportunity. And then I would say to not listen to so many of the you know, gurus in our field that say, hey, you have to learn how to code or, hey, you know, like we earlier said, you know, the newest thing is is content, you know, how to write better. Just find what you're naturally passionate about and lean into that. Then you can work on being more T-shaped, right? Then you can work on the other aspects that you find interesting. But 
in our field as well, product designer, right? That's a huge spectrum, massive. And so especially when people are like, oh, what are you looking for when you're hiring this person? I'm looking for equal skill sets across my whole team because very few people are going to be that unicorn, if anyone, right? Just you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Chris. (laughs) Touche, touche. But in all seriousness, it's a spectrum, right? From hardcore IA or researcher through to hi-fi, viz, motion, and like so many other things in between, right? So figuring out where on that spectrum you're most passionate, then learn everything there is to know about that side of the spectrum, and then get really crisp on what areas you just have no interest in, and that's fine. But then start growing out in the areas that you do, right? So many folks will be like, I just, I can't do motion. I'm just not interested. It's like, that's fine. You don't have to. Because there's someone else on my team who already loves to do that. So you'll partner with them. You'll pair to bring your your designs together, right? But I think, um, like I said, just being curious, you know, joining things like General Assembly or different kind of, you know, however you can gather information and start to learn by doing, right? Whether it's an internship, whether it's, you know, reaching out to someone that you are just cyber stalking on LinkedIn and you think their career is really cool (laughs) and sending them a message like, Hey, I'd love to have 30 minutes of your time. I have some questions for you that I think might help shape my career, right? Getting all those different aspects of knowledge are really important. So hard skills and soft skills. Wow. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Stephanie. Thank you. So fun. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy.is.